You are reading that right. This episode is over an hour long. Uh, when I make these, I do try to keep in mind how people listen to podcasts. I imagine most folks listen to podcasts like I do, on their commute, while jogging, or while folding laundry or whatever. And I want these to be sized appropriately so you can listen to a whole one during a commute, a jog, or a laundry folding session or what have you. Anyway, uh, this one got big and got away from me, and it is huge. But don't worry, that's not going to be a precedent. Future episodes will be normal-sized. Uh, one correction before we begin. Uh, at the end, I mentioned that Operation Full Eagle, the joint South Korean-United States military exercises, had yet to be truly suspended. And when I recorded, that was the case. As of now, when I'm done editing, they are off and not happening. Uh, one more thing, I wanted to say thank you, all of you, for sticking with me through this, and your support with monthly contributions, with sharing the podcast on social media, with rating it on Apple Podcast. Uh, I will say this again at the end, but I'm saying it again now. It means the world to me. Thank you all so much. But without further ado, here we go. <laughs> Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. So last year I did a series on Italian fascism, and one of the things that I liked about that topic, not that I like fascism, it's terrible, death to fascism always, was that it worked well narratively. You have the beginning with the end of World War I and the March on Rome, and then you have the middle, where our main character, Mussolini, a Richard III-esque villain protagonist figure, he's on top of the world. He's giving speeches, taking over Ethiopia, hanging out with Hitler. He's doing the type of things that you would see in, like, an 80s movie, in a montage, with that one song from Scarface playing. And then, at the end, World War II happens. Everything starts falling apart. Our main character loses the support of the people closest to him. And then, at the end, he has his my kingdom for a horse type moment. He is betrayed by the German troops that have him in the back of a van, handed over to Italian troops who are no longer loyal to him, and ends up dead upside down on a gas station. Now, that makes for a great story, and I'm sort of surprised that there's not like a really good, well-known, Mussolini, Richard III-style biopic thing out there. I mean, there is Ian McKellen's version of Richard III, which has fascist overtones, and it is amazing because it's Ian McKellen, you should all watch it. But my point is, is that that story had a good ending. This story about North Korea doesn't. This story, North Korea, does not have an ending. But it's not like I can just say, that's all, folks. So today, I'm going to try to give it one, or rather, take a page from the Clue movie, which is an American classic, and give it three. Today, three alternate futures for North Korea. War, reform, and reunification. All three of these endings are bad. I want to make it very clear that none of these endings are happy ones. Today, we are only talking about different shades of terrible. But let's get the truly terrible one out of the way first. And that's war. There's no option for a surgical strike on North Korea. There's no way that the U.S. could just, say, drop a bomb on the Yongbyon nuclear reactor or send in SEAL Team 6 to assassinate Kim Jong-un and put an end to the threat that they pose. No, because North Korea is armed to the teeth. It is not just a country with an army. It is a militarized society. Again, Songbun was Kim Jong-il's major defining policy. That didn't just mean making nukes. That meant preparing North Korea for war above all else. So North Korea has the biggest army in the world as a percentage of its population. North Korea's population is just over 25 million people, and it has 1.2 million active troops. 
So one twenty-fifth of the country is wearing a uniform and carrying a gun and ready to fight. It's also got an unknown number of reservists, probably several million. So that's huge. And that enormous fighting force has access to a lot of weaponry. North Korea has one of the biggest artillery arsenals in the world, and it's commonly believed massive stockings of chemical and biological weapons. We don't know how many nukes they have. Maybe around 50. Maybe they have like four. Maybe they have closer to 50. We don't know. But the fact that they have more than zero is also kind of a big issue. So let's say the U.S. goes to war with North Korea, assisted by South Korea, probably Japan. We don't know what China's going to get up to yet, but we'll get to them in a minute. How's it go? Well, you don't have to be a tactical genius to see that Seoul, the capital of South Korea, is pretty close to North Korea. Seoul is within the range of the DPRK's conventional artillery. So they don't even need a nuke to take out one of the biggest cities on Earth. During the first day of fighting, North Korea's ordinary guns, again, not nukes, but just but just conventional weapons that fire ordinary ordnance, could rain down about 10,000 explosions on that city per minute. Think about that. Think about a giant city filled with traffic, subways, downtowns, and above all, millions and millions of people. Now think about 10,000 explosions in that city in less than the time it takes to listen to a pop song. And then have it happen again. During the first day of fighting, we would probably see around 250,000 to 300,000 deaths in South Korea, soldier and civilian alike, on the first day. On the second day, the body count would probably be around the same, and it wouldn't take too long. It would take probably about a week for millions of people to be dead just in South Korea. Now, there's also the issue of North Korea's chemical and biological weapons. What do they have? We don't know. But most of the intelligence community thinks that North Korea has access to things like VX, like sarin, and maybe even weaponized bubonic plague. Are we sure of this? No. But based on everything we know about North Korea, it wouldn't surprise me that the Kim regime has used its money that it's raised, like, by selling meth and slaves, to purchase some of the most destructive and illegal weapons known to humanity. And there's the whole nuclear issue. Now, with nukes, you're probably wondering, when will they use them? Now, oftentimes when we think about nuclear war, and we think about a country like the United States or the Soviet Union, uh, what it would take for them to pull the trigger on their nuclear weapons, we usually think about them using it as a very, very last resort. Now, it's possible that Kim could think that way. But it's also possible that he might actually use nukes really early in a conflict. The logic being that even though North Korea is, you know, armed to the teeth, they will lose. Like, South Korea and the United States just have flat-out better weapons and better technology. So once war starts, it's basically a ticking clock to the end of the Kim regime. So in a lot of ways, they're already desperate from the beginning of the conflict. We think about the U.S. or the Soviet Union having to be backed up against the wall in order to press the button. North Korea, if a war breaks out, will be at the wall basically immediately, so why not go nuclear? There's also the issue of Kim knowing that the U.S. and South Korea will probably be targeting North Korea's nuclear sites. So he knows that the U.S. is spying on him and probably knows where a lot of their nukes are, so he probably knows that a lot of their nukes are targeted, so if he wants to use them at all before his nukes get rocketed or nuked, he has to use them first or he will lose them. During the Cold War, lots of nuclear missiles were pointed at other nuclear missiles. So if Kim is worrying about the U.S. dropping our nuclear weapons on his, he would use his first so he could use them at all. Make sense? If he does, we have no idea where he'll target. We don't know exactly the range of North Korean missiles. 
uh, it's possible that they can't hit the United States at all. So we could say goodbye to most of Japan and a lot of East Asian American military bases and basically all of South Korea. But it's also possible that they could hit the United States. So it could be within the first day of armed conflict with North Korea, we could see the destruction of Seoul and Los Angeles simultaneously. One city destroyed by conventional weapons and another city destroyed by a nuclear weapon. North Korea would lose. It would absolutely be overpowered by the United States, South Korea, maybe Japan and whoever else wants to maybe join in this fight for reasons, but it would take so many down with it. Now, I haven't talked about China yet. There are two ways China could go in this conflict. China could take its traditional position and say, oh, North Korea is our ally, their survival is important to us, and we are going to leap in this fight just like we did in the Korean War to preserve the Kim regime. If that happens, if the United States and China start fighting... Then we get into the really bad territory, where it's World War III, everyone dies, go to your nearest vault, put on a blue and gold jumpsuit, and hello mutant nuclear apocalypse. Like, maybe. Maybe I'm being hyperbolic here. But then there's the other way China could go, where China says, oh, hey, we recognize that North Korea is an international pariah. Rather than having South Korea or the United States take over this area and get their nuclear arsenal because there's a possibility that war with North Korea could mean South Korea seizing part of North Korea's nuclear arsenal. And if that happens, then, like, hello, nuclear South Korea, hello, a Western-aligned nuclear power on China's doorstep, which they probably wouldn't be too into. So to prevent that, it's entirely possible that China could be really, really rational and mercenary, go on into North Korea, steamroll over them, and try to take the country over before anyone else could get to it. But we don't know. This is all speculation. There's so much we don't know here. The only thing we know for sure, it would be utterly catastrophic. Literally, the only good thing about war with North Korea is that the Kim regime wouldn't exist anymore. That's it. Millions of lives would be lost. It would be a humanitarian catastrophe. It would be an environmental catastrophe. With the loss of cities and everything that's in them, it would probably also be a cultural catastrophe. But there are alternatives. What about reform? After all, it's not like China is truly communist anymore. Uh, Vietnam, they're doing fine. North Korea, instead of going full revolution, you know, no need to form an angry mob and rip down red flags and topple statues of Kim Il-sung. Why not just change a few things here and there? Tighten some screws, loosen some regulations, uh, kind of gradually morph into a quote-unquote normal East Asian country. You would think that the famine in the 1990s would encourage that. And it did. Kind of. I don't want to give you the impression that the famine turned a lot of North Koreans into capitalists, that's not at all what happened. But it did provide a powerful incentive for a lot of people to produce and even sell things on their own. So the famine hobbled the regime, and the regime loosened up a lot of the restrictions on North Koreans tending to their own kitchen gardens, what we could kind of think of as like private land. A lot of folks were still required to put in time at state-run collective farms, but the regime wasn't really delivering the food rations weren't really happening. You could imagine that because the regime wasn't able to deliver, that would kind of uh, tamp down on morale when you had to do work for them. And a lot of folks really focused on what they knew would provide immediate results for them and theirs. So during the famine, if you wanted to eat, it was often because of things that you grew or sometimes caught. Uh, one side effect of the famine is that it nearly eliminated North Korea's frog population. So going out there and trying to catch some kind of protein, even frog, I don't know, maybe frog is good. I've never actually had it. I mean, it's considered a fancy French thing. Maybe it's good. The point is, is that people were not getting their daily sustenance from rations from the state. They were getting it themselves. And some people had a lot extra. They had surplus. There was also... A demand because, hey, starvation. 
Uh, you can probably see where this is going. Black markets. That is where it's going. And so during the famine, black markets became extremely commonplace. Now, the Kim regime didn't really tamp down on this. Selling food, especially rice, was illegal. But the regime kind of looked the other way. They kind of had to. Like, everyone was starving, including the police and the military. And the people who were selling food were also in a great position to bribe the authorities with food to make them go away. Now, a lot of these black markets over the years started selling things besides food. North Korea has had this kind of booming underground black market thing going on that's also incorporated smuggled in consumer goods. Stuff like TVs, DVD players, and a lot of movies from South Korea. South Korea has a booming TV industry. South Korean soap operas, they are a thing. They are extremely popular. And importing culture, especially culture in a language I can understand, is one of the big things that black markets have really gotten into recently. So yeah, you have this informal economy going, and at the same time, the formal economy was stagnating. I mean, once the food stops, a lot of industry also stopped. You had almost total economic collapse. Plenty of factories and power plants just didn't have anything for people to do. So it was pretty commonplace in the 90s and 2000s for people to show up at work every day and nothing's happening. Nothing's going on. Folks have a job, but there's no work to be performed. There's no paycheck at the end of the month. If you want cash, if you want food, well, I don't know. Try to get in on the underground soap opera importing business. So in 2009, the regime had a way of dealing with this, of saying, hey, our formal economy is kind of stopped and our informal economy is doing gangbusters. Let's do something about it. What they did was a currency reevaluation in 2009 that could have been potentially catastrophic. See, the regime wanted to do two things. Punish people who had been selling on the black market and reward people who had been loyal in showing up to the industrial facilities and collective farms and power plants where nothing was happening. So here was the plan. There would be a new wand issued. And on November 30th, on 11 o'clock, 2009, the old wan would immediately become useless, and the new wan would become the new medium of exchange. So, basically, the new wan had two zeros chopped off of it. 10,000 of the old wan would theoretically have the same purchasing power as 100 of the new wan. You get me? So here's the thing. Let's say you wanted to exchange old wan for new one. At the same time, all prices would get two zeros chopped off of them. So something was 2,000 won? Great. Now it's 20 won. Okay, great. You're probably thinking, well, this sounds fine. They're getting rid of some zeros on the currency. Why not just trade in your old won for new won before the exchange? There was a limit. See, people were limited to about 100,000 won per person. So let's say you're one of those like evil anti-socialist profiteers out there selling illegal turnips on the black market. You've got all this extra cash. You can only turn 100,000 of it, which, by the way, is about 30 bucks, into new won. You could very well be stuck with a lot of useless cash that you're not legally allowed to convert. But wait, there's more. Let's say you're a loyal factory worker who's been showing up to work every day even though the factory is empty, instead of being one of those evil anti-socialist profiteers out there in the streets selling onions. Well, let's say you used to make 3,000 won a month. Guess what? You still do. You still make 3,000 won a month in new won, which has even more purchasing power. So this was the regime's attempt at rewarding people who'd stay loyal and trying to re-legitimize the official economy, trying to hobble the unofficial economy. And as you might imagine, this did a number on the North Korean economy. 
inflation ended up following, and there was pretty widespread public discontent about this. I've quoted Andrei Lankov before. He's a North Korean expert who used to live in Pyongyang as a Soviet exchange student. And here's what he has to say about public reaction to economic reforms in 2010 North Korea. Quote, For a brief while in January and February 2010, a major outbreak of public discontent seemed to be within the realms of possibility. Dissatisfaction was expressed with unprecedented frankness. It was the first time in decades when even highly privileged members of the Pyongyang elite openly criticized their government's actions when talking to foreigners. Russian students in Pyongyang were approached by classmates who did not bother to hide their anger about the currency reform, and North Korean diplomats sometimes made pointed comments to their foreign opposite numbers. A military attaché of one Western country, not exactly friendly from the North Korean point of view, told me of his opposite numbers having related that the North Korean government doesn't quite understand what it's doing. One can imagine how angry a military intelligence officer in one of the world's most controlled societies has to be in order to share his frustration with an imperialist outsider. Unquote. It is a miracle that the North Korean economy did not collapse after that. But there have been a few other sort of areas of reform in North Korea. For instance, there are now places in the country where North Korea has attempted to have some contact with the outside world, such as the Kumyang Resort, which is North Korea's attempt at a large luxury ski resort that they hoped would actually cater to South Koreans, surprisingly enough. And there's also the Kaesong Industrial Zone. That is kind of a curious area between the two Koreas. And it's an industrial zone where, basically, South Korean companies take advantage of inexpensive North Korean labor. So there are about 250 to 300 South Korean companies in the area, and there are about 47,000 North Korean workers that these South Korean companies can just hire. Uh, most of them work in the textile industry, and the wages paid these workers are far, far below anything in South Korea. Again, what makes it worth South Korea's while is the cheapness of North Korean labor. And it's really, really easy to look at the Kaesong Industrial Zone and be kind of cynical about it. To see, oh, hey, this is a bunch of soulless capitalists who are exploiting the relatively low standard of living of an authoritarian regime. And, hey, it kind of is that, but at the same time, what people make in the Kaesong Industrial Zone is much, much more than what any other North Korean laborer makes. And apparently, there's a waiting list to get into this place. North Koreans actively want to work there. Now, one of the issues, though, with the Kumyang Resort and the Kaesong Industrial Zone is that there is practically no real contact between South and North Koreans. The regime works very, very hard to prevent North and South Koreans from actually mingling with each other. And during the famine, the regime even requested that aid workers who came to North Korea not have any knowledge of the Korean language because they didn't want people to be understood, and they didn't want foreigners out there in the country, you know, talking to people about ideologies like not juche. Uh, anyway, the Kumyang Resort was a giant flop. It did not turn into the, like, world-renowned millions-of-visitor ski paradise it was supposed to be. The Kaesong Industrial Zone, actually really successful. However, that economic exchange did not translate into any kind of meaningful cultural or political exchange, except in one way, and this is too good for me to pass up. Before I go on, there's one more little detail about the Kaesong Industrial Zone that I've been waiting this whole series to share with you. And here it is. We're back with our guy Victor Cha, who has this to say about North Korea's favorite mass-produced snack food. Quote, Choco pies are the popular South Korean equivalent of the American Oreo cookie or Hostess Twinkies. It is a confectionery treat manufactured since 1974 in South Korea by the Orion Company. It consists of two chocolate-covered cookies sandwiched together by a bed of marshmallow, so it's actually more like an American s'more or moon pie. In 2005, one of the ROK businesses operating at Kaesong started to reward their workers with one or two choco pies per day. The female laborers, and by the way, the people who worked at Kaesong were overwhelmingly women, 
tasted the treat, and knew they had something of value. Popularity of the choco pie spread, and other South Korean businesses at Kaesong put in orders with Orion to have 10,000 boxes shipped immediately. DPRK workers, however, stopped eating them and started to hoard them for sale outside of Kaesong. ROK unification officials said that soon after the distribution of the choco pie started, the factory trash handlers could hardly find a spent wrapper. Rather than being consumed daily at Kaesong, many of these choco pies were selling on the black market for as much as $9.50 per pie. They cost 45 cents at your local 7-Eleven in South Korea. According to a Japanese newspaper report, 2.5 million choco pies are traded in North Korea today. Kaesong workers quickly figured out that selling one of these confectionery delights could fetch one-sixth of their monthly wage. Unquote. But it's kind of nice to think that people, no matter who they are, where they are, we all like chocolate garbage food. That's something that's common to Americans, North Koreans, everyone. But there's also been plenty of attempts at engagement with North Korea. During the 1990s and 2000s, South Korea has pursued a set of policies that are broadly termed the Sunshine Policy, which means that they wanted to avoid militarily provoking the North, step back on rhetoric about uniting or reabsorbing the North, and also try to, you know, engage North Korea and attempt some kind of reconciliation. This attempt at better relations with North Korea, by the way, earned former South Korean Prime Minister Kim Dae-jung a Nobel Peace Prize. And, I mean, we're still talking about North Korea, so I don't know if we can say he was successful yet, but, yeah, Guy deserved it, trying to peacefully engage with one of the most repressive and difficult countries in the world. It's really easy to be cynical about a policy of engagement, though. I mean, look where we are. South Korea has yet to be successful with really engaging and gaining leverage over North Korea in a meaningful way. And it's not the only country that's had trouble doing that. The Soviet Union, China, and the United States have also all had a really hard time interacting with North Korea. China, if they really wanted to, could embargo North Korea, declare an open border and allow North Korean refugees to stream into their country, uh, and basically completely destroy their economy. That would cause chaos and an internal collapse in North Korea, probably not something China wants. But even though it has that capability to really smash up and destroy North Korea economically, it doesn't really have a lot of leverage to make them, like, do things. One of the surprising things I found out doing this series is that China's frustrated with North Korea, too. Kim Jong-il traveled to China pretty frequently, and apparently his visits were always kind of the same. Chinese officials would take him to the various special economic zones. They would talk about how great things were, how much money everyone's making, how people's quality of life has risen considerably, and really, hey, man, if you want to do the same for your country, we'll help you. And then Kim Jong-il would nod politely, say, yes, this is all very good, go home and not do anything. And he did this repeatedly. Much to China's chagrin, China would love it if North Korea became a more responsible, less chaotic country, adopted their model of doing things, and became somebody that, you know, China could sell stuff to. But here, ultimately, is the problem. The incentives and the needs of the Kim regime and the incentives and the needs of North Korea, the country, are different. North Korea, the country, would probably do pretty well to have a bunch of shiny new stuff and development for no other reason than making starvation and malnutrition less frequent. However, widespread economic development also means opening yourself up to the outside world. And if North Korea opens itself up to the outside world, a lot of people who don't know that they can have a better deal will know that they can have a better deal. They will know that there are alternatives. North Korea, in its propaganda for a long time, said that you don't want to go to South Korea. South Korea, it's occupied by the Americans. They use small children as target practice. Streets are filled with garbage. Everything's on fire. It is a dystopia. We here in North Korea have it good. Nowadays, the propaganda has taken a different tone. 
Nowadays, instead of South Korea being like Mad Max, they can't hide the fact that South Korea actually does materially well. So North Korea has to talk about it being decadent, being spiritually dead, and still beholden to its occupying Yankee masters. I've said this before, and it's really easy to look at propaganda and roll your eyes or turn your nose up at it and wonder how anyone could believe that. But if it's your world, and it's something that has been in your face since you were young, you might actually believe it. You might even kind of like it. I mean... America has propaganda. We have Michael Bay movies. That part in Armageddon where like all the little kids are coming out and waving their flags and there's like baseball and apple pie and stuff. I mean, it's stupid, but it's also genuinely like all emotionful for some people. I mean, Michael Bay at least. I'm getting off track here. The point is, in the right context and with the right audience, propaganda can work. And if there's a counter narrative and if North Korea's propaganda stops working, that could be a problem. In fact, it might even be a problem now. North Korea nowadays does have kind of this sort of embryonic young professional population in Pyongyang. The word Pyonghattan is thrown around a lot of the times to uh, you know, talk about these folks who are in their 20s and 30s and are supposed to be like the new modern generation of Koreans. Apparently, a new fashion accessory is a USB drive. The internet is illegal there. But carrying around a USB drive to show that you know how to use a computer and are all tech-savvy and stuff is sort of a mark of cool in North Korea. Now, it is possible that a lot of these young professionals are ill-equipped to start a revolution or maybe don't even want to. After all, they have positions of privilege in an authoritarian regime. So they might want to retain that. They could very well look at their situation and say hey, guys, uh, if we're going to retain our privilege, we need to keep things going as they are. But there's also the possibility that if a lot of these like middle-class-esque Koreans see that they're not in a position of privilege globally, that they are, in fact, not doing as well as South Koreans, as Japanese, as Chinese, they might demand better. We don't know which way the next generation of North Koreans is going to break. But while we're on the subject of young North Koreans, let's talk about the best-known young North Korean of all, Kim Jong-un. So who is Kim Jong-un? Well, the short answer is that he is Kim Jong-il's son. But that's a little awkward. Unlike Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il was never portrayed in North Korea as a family man. Now, Kim Il-sung was married. He was married twice. Uh, his first wife, Kim Jong-suk, is the mother of Kim Jong-il. Kim Jong-suk, she died at the age of 31, but she is highly mythologized in North Korean propaganda. There are murals portraying her. Stuff is named after her. She is, after all, Kim Jong-il's mom. So she is in the pantheon of important figures in the Kim regime. Kim Il-sung's second wife, Kim Song-ai, is less mythologized, which must have been really awkward for her, like marrying a widower and his first wife, your, like, predecessor. She's all over propaganda and murals and everything, and you're not? Must have made the relationship weird. The point is, Kim Jong-il's parents were both very, very well-known. And Kim Jong-il, he had his big coming out party in the 70s. The transition between Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il was gradual, with Kim Jong-il kind of running things for the most part until Kim Il-sung eventually died in the 1990s. And when that happened, it really wasn't a sudden shift for the state. For the most part, things kept going as they had been going, and a lot of people were really used to seeing Kim Jong-il in charge of things anyway. With Kim Jong-un, though, it's a little different. See, Kim Jong-il wasn't married. He doesn't have a partner, like his mother, who has been mythologized in North Korean propaganda. He had four sexual partners that we know of, and one of them, Ko Yong-hui, is Kim Jong-un's mother. Now, in North Korean propaganda, Ko Yong-hui doesn't really kind of officially exist. She is never mentioned by name. 
nowadays when somebody has to mention that Kim Jong-un has a mom, they only call her something like the respected mother of the supreme commander or something of that nature or mother of Pyongyang or mother of the great general, that kind of thing. Uh, that is because Ko Yong-hui is of partial Japanese descent. So that makes her Songbun. That is a kind of caste system in North Korea where you are considered loyal, wavering, or hostile. Low. Again, that's hereditary. There is nothing you can do to change it. And merely the fact of being of Japanese ancestry means that you are automatically of the hostile class. So Kim Jong-il had at least four women that he, you know, hung out with one of partial Japanese descent, and he had a number of children with them. Kim Jong-un, by the way, is not Kim Jong-il's oldest kid. The oldest of the Kim kids is Kim Jong-nam. And the reason that he is not in charge of North Korea, and his brother is, is that he got arrested in Japan when he got caught with a fake Dominican passport while trying to go to Disneyland. Kim Jong-nam now lives the life of an international playboy in Macau and plays things pretty close to the chest, but has occasionally spoken to the media about what went on inside the Kim regime. Though any insight that he would have had would be from well over a decade now and is no longer up to date. So when the North Korean propaganda machine was getting ready to roll out Kim Jong-un, they did so gradually. The first mentions of him were not by name. Instead, propaganda texts talked about a young, upcoming general. And this general was often mentioned in the same breath as Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. Also, references to this young general were sometimes printed in red ink. Red ink is reserved for Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. So suddenly, to have this new guy who's all upcoming and whatever and see his name printed in the special ink reserved for leaders was a big deal. In 2010, the identity of this general was finally revealed. And guess what, everyone? It's another Kim. Kim Jong-un. Now, references to him being Kim Jong-il's son weren't immediately apparent. That was also gradually rolled out because, again, there's the uncomfortable thing about how his dad wasn't married, had several concubines, and suddenly, by the way, had a son who was somewhere in his late 20s. I say somewhere in his late 20s because even now, we're not entirely sure how old Kim Jong-un is. He was born sometime between 1980 and 1984, which, by the way, is weird for me because one of the most dangerous men on earth is my peer. Like, I was born in 1980, and this guy is, like, kind of the same age as me. So I guess maybe we grew up watching the same Thundercats and stuff. Anyway, we do know that he was schooled in Switzerland. He grew up going to an international school and was passed off as the son of North Korean diplomats, not as one of the Kims. And when he was going to school, it wasn't under his real name. Apparently, he speaks English and German. He's married. He has one kid, a daughter. And he has kind of broken with protocol in a few ways. For instance, his wife makes all kinds of public appearances with him. And, rather scandalously, she has appeared in public not wearing a Kim Il-sung pin, which is a big deal in North Korea because that is something that the cops can, you know, be cops at you for. He also appears to have this whole deal with resorts and water parks and ski slopes and all of that. So a lot of the projects that he's gotten behind have been kind of tourism-oriented, weirdly enough. And here's some insight into his personality from Andrei Lankov. Quote, In July 2012, Kim Jong-un visited the first concert of a newly established pop music group named Moranbong, which is also the name of a very famous scenic hill park in downtown Pyongyang. The official media extolled the group and assured the public that their future performances would greatly contribute to further development and construction in People's Korea. Well, perhaps it will, but the group's first concert was rather unlike anything North Korea had ever seen. To start with, the female performers who comprised the group were dressed rather risqueely by North Korean standards. The music performed included the theme from the Hollywood movie Rocky and a song by Frank Sinatra. While this politically suspicious music was being performed, actors dressed as Mickey and Minnie Mouse, Winnie the Pooh, and Tigger 2, to quote A.A. Milne, danced on stage. 
Disney lawyers even felt obliged to release a statement soon afterward, confirming that they had not been involved with the concert. Unquote. So you might be thinking, well, this guy, he likes putting a lot of energy into tourism destinations. Apparently he likes pop groups and dancing Winnie the Pooh. Uh, maybe he's somebody that we can work with. Maybe he's going to be a new kind of North Korean leader. And he had his uncle killed. So one of the big speculations about Kim Jong-un was that his uncle would possibly be a sort of regent as he came of age because he was somewhere between 28 and 30 when he assumed leadership of the country. So a lot of North Korea watchers thought, here's what's going to happen. The senior officials that are holdovers from Kim Jong-il's regime are actually going to run things, and only later will Kim Jong-un be the guy who's actually in charge of stuff. Well, Kim Jong-un had his uncle dragged out of a meeting, beaten, and then executed, and purged several other senior officials who were in his way. So please bear that in mind. At first blush, he does kind of look like a happy millennial world leader who thinks, wow, gee whiz, guys, it's great to have my own country, but he is just as willing to employ the same tactics of violence that his father and his grandfather employed. Whether or not he'll be all amenable to reform is unknown. And speaking of reform, one of the insidious things about it is that if it happens, it will happen because it benefits the existing power structure. Reform in North Korea will be really morally unsatisfying because it is the Kim regime, it is the government, it is people who are already powerful and influential who will profit from it first and foremost. If North Korea reforms into something China-like, It'll be something like a developmental dictatorship. It'll have an entrenched moneyed overclass that reaps by far most of the benefits of the new economy it builds. Will that be unfair? Yes. Unequal? Absolutely. Kind of hard to look at? Of course. But if it makes war less likely, it's probably a good thing. Now, let's pretend for a moment that reunification, peaceful reunification, could somehow be possible. Maybe because the regime collapses from within. Perhaps because of a popular uprising. Perhaps because of some economic crisis. Or maybe because Kim Jong-un and his inner circle decide to just fold up their red flags and call it a day. Who knows? If there was some unforeseen fantastic scenario where the North Korean regime just kind of stopped or broke, or went away, victory, right? Well, no. That situation is still kind of terrible in its own way. A lot of people think about Germany and its reunification in the early 1990s when they think of possible North Korean reunification. But here's the thing. East Germans, they knew about the world. They listened to West German radio and watched West German TV shows. They also had access to things like the Voice of America, BBC, and other forms of media outside their own country and even outside the Eastern Bloc. So when a lot of those East Germans saw the Berlin Wall come down, they knew what was on the other side of it. Plenty of North Koreans don't. I want to read to you now a quote from, I think, my favorite book I read for this project. It's a book called Without You, There Is No Us by Suki Kim. She is South Korean and American, and lived in North Korea, teaching the sons of North Korean elites. And I want you to keep in mind that in this passage, she is teaching college-age students, and these are kids who are supposed to be the best of the best, really well-educated, the ones who are going to take over government and military offices in a future North Korea. She writes, quote, By the second week, with the school's approval, the teachers had begun to introduce the students to various parlor games, trivia contests, spelling bees, Pictionary. Right away I was struck by their astounding lack of general knowledge about the world. These were North Korea's brightest students, yet photos of the United Nations, the Taj Mahal, and the Great Pyramids of Giza elicited only blank expressions. A few guessed the names and locations of the Eiffel Tower and Stonehenge, but only after much hemming and hawing. 
Hardly anyone knew what country had first landed men on the moon, despite the fact that they were science and technology majors. Asked what year computers had been invented, most had no idea. Unquote. Again, that was probably my favorite book that I've read for this entire project. And Without You, There Is No Us is a profound act of empathy on the part of Sugi Kim. Over and over, she tries to establish some connection with these students and just again and again is frustrated. And it's not like she can't communicate with them. It's not like there's nothing there or they're aliens or brainwashed or zombies or anything like that. No, nothing like that. But, but again and again, she encounters a wall that she can't get through when she's trying to relate to these people with whom she shares a language and a heritage, but is also profoundly separated from. And if North Korea and South Korea were to reunite peacefully, we would just see that on a grand scale. Also, think about how ill-prepared lots of North Koreans would be for being part of a single country with South Korea. So many people would have their lives disrupted. Certainly, many more people would have their lives improved. They would suddenly have access to an agricultural system that could probably feed them, uh, a medical system that could probably see to their needs. Starvation and malnutrition probably wouldn't be as salient of a problem, yes. But on the other hand, think about this. You're a North Korean engineer. It's what you've done your whole life. You've studied, you've applied yourself, and your skills are useful in your very specific context. But in a reunited Korea, your skills would be useless. You've been making old Soviet equipment from the 1960s work for 50 plus years. Now, though, South Korea, with all of its new equipment and new technology, has things that are incomprehensible for you. An engineer in South Korea is very different from an engineer in North Korea, and your skills are obsolete. You don't qualify anymore. What do you do? And there's the whole economic issue. South Korea has one of the world's biggest economies. It's $1.411 trillion. On a global scale, that's big. North Korea's GDP is $12.38 billion. That is a massive gap. East Germany and West Germany were much closer together. West Germany's economy was only three times bigger than East Germany's. And even that transition was hard. If reunification happened, you would see the shock of one of the biggest and most high-tech and richest countries in the world absorbing one of the poorest. And who knows what that's going to be like. Psychically, socially, and economically catastrophic for a lot of people. And there's one more thing, too. Don't think that just because the government falls, love and affection for the Kim regime is going to go away. Here's a kind of horrifying thing. There are North Koreans who live outside of North Korea that still revere the Kim regime. Plenty of North Koreans left because of hunger, of desperation. Most North Korean refugees to South Korea are women, and plenty of them left because they were fleeing abusive husbands, and leaving the entire country was the only way that they could actually get away from that. And when they set up their life in South Korea... They make it clear that their reason for fleeing was about survival or about their personal situation. Plenty of them still think fondly of Kim Il-sung or even Kim Jong-il. And there is a population, a fairly large one, of North Koreans in Japan. They're called the Chongryan, and plenty of them actually send their kids to school in North Korea and revere the Kims, even though they live in a much, much freer country. They have the ability to not actually wear the Kim Il-sung pins. They have the ability to not think that Juche is the greatest and most interesting ideology ever. And yet, they kind of choose to be bound to it. So if reunification ever happened, think about how a united Korea would have to handle that. In its monuments, in its government, in its telling of history. Heck, in the United States, we have a hard time dealing with the Confederacy, even now. And it's well over a century later. Think about North Korea grappling with that, and the regime that a lot of people either want to memorialize or bury is within living memory. 
even with reunification, even with peaceful reunification, there is the possibility that there might persist a North Korea of the mind, and it might persist for a generation or more. One more thing before we go, before we leave North Korea behind, and this podcast gets back to what it's normally about. I'm recording this on June 17th, 2018, and a little under a week ago, Kim Jong-un met with the American president, Donald Trump. An American presidential visit is something that North Korea has wanted for a long time. As much as North Korea pursues isolation and supposed self-reliance, and as much as its propaganda talks about spurning or crushing or eliminating South Korea, Japan, the United States, and even sometimes China, it craves legitimacy. It wants to be perceived, and the Kim regime wants to perceive itself as on the same footing as other countries. A meeting with an American president is something that can go a long way toward giving it that kind of legitimacy. It's been a stated goal of North Korea for some time to sit down with and meet with an American president and to have a North Korean leader photographed with an American president. Also, it's been an issue in negotiations with North Korea in the past. Back in the 1990s, when the agreed framework about North Korea's nuclear program was being negotiated, the non-presence of Bill Clinton was a problem. It wasn't the President of the United States that negotiated that, or even signed that on behalf of the U.S. It was an Assistant Secretary of State. Think about that. Not even a cabinet member, but an assistant cabinet member, was held out by the U.S. as being of equal footing with the leader of all of North Korea. And it actually almost delayed the implementation of the agreed framework. What ended up saving it is that Bill Clinton sent a letter. He didn't show up. He sent a letter, and in something that also derailed the negotiations, he simply signed a letter, William Jefferson Clinton. He didn't sign it, William Jefferson Clinton, President of the United States of America. Donald Trump, however, has given North Korea the presidential legitimation they have always dreamed of. Kim Jong-un has been able to pull off something that Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il weren't able to. He's been able to have the American and North Korean flag right next to each other. And I'm going to guess that this meeting between Kim and Trump will be featured in North Korean propaganda for years to come. After all, the end of the war is considered not an armistice or a stalemate, but victory for North Korea and a Yankee surrender. The seizure of the USS Pueblo is portrayed in North Korea as a great and decisive military victory. Aid on the part of the United States, South Korea, and Japan is considered and portrayed as tribute inside the country, or goods that North Korean soldiers have seized somehow from the Yankees to Japanese or the South Koreans. And I will bet you anything that in the coming years, this meeting with Trump is something that Kim will make propaganda hay out of. And regardless of what they talked about or didn't talk about at their summit, Kim will portray it as the United States bending to his will. And comments like Trump saying about how smart and funny and how much he loves his people, well, they'll use that too. I mean, North Korean, it's an authoritarian regime, but Kim still has to worry about his legitimacy within the inner circle, with members of his cabinet and the upper echelons of his military and people in the Korean Workers' Party, and this will help him do precisely that. Dictators still need to play politics, and Kim is going to do very well at politics because of what just happened. They also signed an agreement, which is not terribly substantive. Trump made a pledge to stop regular military exercises that the United States performs with South Korea. It's a series of exercises known as Full Eagle, and that is not full as in complete, that is full as in, like, young horse. I know, it's a weird name. And that is basically the kind of dress rehearsal for an invasion of the North. Now, 
the North would probably want those exercises to stop for a few reasons. One is because they would consider them insulting. But the other big reason is that if you want to invade somebody, you can kind of wrap up and disguise the initial stages of your invasion as a military exercise. And if you're not performing military exercises, you don't have the option to do that. However, there are two parties that were not consulted about the cessation of the full eagle exercises. The Pentagon and South Korea. As of now, the actual real bureaucratic levers that need to be pulled to to stop these things remain unpulled. So who knows if the U.S. and South Korea are going to do their regular practice invasion or not. And we still don't know how it's going to play in South Korea. I mean, plenty of South Korean conservatives are probably incensed right now, and I want to say I am much less familiar with South Korean politics than I am with North Korean history. But there are plenty of people in South Korea who think, hey, the only way we're going to get rid of him is with war. Let's go for it. Let's do it. Or they want to keep the pressure on, stay aggressive, not do a lot of things like give them food, that kind of thing. There are also South Korean progressives who possibly think that a cessation of military exercises could help with rapprochement with North Korea. We don't know what the results actually will be, other than a major propaganda victory for Kim. There's also the possibility that North Korea will not be so nice after this agreement that Kim and Trump signed. North Korea has acted in bad faith before. It has gone back on its word before. It has sat there and gotten yelled at by American and South Korean diplomats. And then American and South Korean diplomats have not really listened to whatever North Koreans had to say. And whatever agreement there was fell apart and stuff just got bad again. I wouldn't be surprised if Trump understands this as some kind of definitive agreement. And then in maybe a few months, a year, year and a half, North Korea is back to its old bellicose self again. And he gets mad, and he uses this as a popular excuse or reason for war. That's my worst-case scenario, honestly. Seeing Donald Trump very happy in believing things are fixed, and then getting mad and starting a war when things turn out not to be. Now, I don't really want to speculate, but I feel like I owe you the narrative satisfaction of my opinion. So, here's what I think. I don't think North Korea is going to collapse anytime soon, and I don't think it's going to disarm. I also don't think that Kim is stupid enough to start a war. I do think Donald Trump might be. I think the best case scenario is that North Korea becomes a kind of developmental dictatorship where a repressive and terrible system gradually becomes more economically open but not necessarily more politically open, where you do have a small population of urban elites in Pyongyang who live lifestyles that are comparable to those in South Korea or other developed countries, and you continue to have a bunch of people impoverished in the countryside who are politically, economically, and socially disenfranchised. And maybe that new class of people in Pyongyang would gradually want more rule of law for them. Not for the underclass, not with people who are of low songbun, but for them. And then maybe that rule of law can expand ever so slightly. Maybe some contact with the outside world will slowly, slowly allow North Korea to change and become just a little bit more like a normal country, albeit still a repressive one. I hate to say it, but I think that might be the most likely scenario and I dearly hope that I'm wrong. This project has been huge. I am, I'll be honest, happy to be done with it. And I also want to add that I really appreciate the support of all of you throughout it. Every single week when the podcast comes out and somebody likes a new episode on Facebook, or tweets about it, or leaves a review on iTunes, or becomes a monthly supporter, that means the world to me. And I couldn't have got through it without you. So if you haven't already, please do become a monthly supporter. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com and do that thing. Please do leave reviews on iTunes. That helps other people follow the show. 
And I am on social media at Joe Streckert, at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Weird History Podcast. Thank you all very, very much for listening throughout this entire series on North Korea. And next week, we're going to talk about something else. Bye. Bye. <laughs>